Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Whisperer in Darkness by H. P. Lovecraft. Seven. Refusing to let those cloudy qualms overmaster me, I recalled Noise's instructions and pushed open the six-panelled, brass-latched white door on my left. The room beyond was darkened, as I had known before, and as I entered it, I noticed that the queer odour was stronger there. There likewise appeared to be some faint, half-imaginary rhythm or vibration in the air. For a moment, the closed blinds allowed me to see very little, but then a kind of apoplectic hacking or whispering sound drew my attention to a great easy-chair in the farther, darker corner of the room. Within its shadowy depths, I saw the white blur of a man's face and hands, and in a moment I had crossed to greet the figure, who had tried to speak. Dim though the light was, I perceived that this was indeed my host. I had studied the Kodak picture repeatedly, and there could be no mistake about this firm, weather-beaten face with the cropped, grizzled beard. But as I looked again, my recognition was mixed with sadness and anxiety, for certainly this face was that of a very sick man. I felt that there must be something more than asthma behind that strained, rigid, immobile expression and unwinking, glassy stare, and realized how terribly the strain of his frightful experiences must have told on him. Was it not enough to break any human being, even a younger man than this intrepid delver into the forbidden? The strange and sudden relief, I feared, had come too late to save him from something like a general breakdown. There was a touch of the pitiful, in the limp, lifeless way his lean hands rested in his lap. He had on a loose dressing-gown, and was swathed around the head and high around the neck with a vivid yellow scarf or hood, and then I saw that he was trying to talk in the same hacking whisper with which he had greeted me. It was a hard whisper to catch at first, since the grey moustache concealed all movements of the lips, and something in its timbre disturbed me greatly, but by concentrating my attention I could soon make out its purport surprisingly well. The accent was by no means a rustic one, and the language was even more polished than correspondence had led me to expect. "'Mr. Wilmarth, I presume, you must pardon my not rising. I am quite ill, as Mr. Noyes must have told you, but I could not resist having you come just the same. You know what I wrote in my last letter. There is so much to tell you tomorrow, and I shall feel better.' I can't say how glad I am to see you in person, after all our many letters. You have the file with you, of course, and the Kodak prints and record. Noise put your valise in the hall. I suppose you saw it. For tonight I fear you'll have to wait on yourself, to a great extent. Your room is upstairs, the one over this and you'll see the bathroom door open at the head of the staircase. There's a meal spread for you in the dining-room, right through this door at your right, which you can take whenever you feel like it. I'll be a better host tomorrow, 
but just now weakness leaves me helpless. Make yourself at home. You might take out the letters and pictures and record and put them on the table here before you go upstairs with your bag. It is here that we shall discuss them. You can see my phonograph on that corner stand. No, thanks. There's nothing you can do for me. I know these spells of old. Just come back for a little quiet visiting before night, and then go to bed when you please. I'll rest right here, perhaps sleep here all night, as I often do. In the morning I'll be far better able to go into the things we must go into. You realize, of course, the utterly stupendous nature of the matter before us. To us, as to only a few men on this earth, there will be opened up gulfs of time and space and knowledge beyond anything within the conception of human science and philosophy. Do you know that Einstein is wrong, and that certain objects and forces can move with a velocity greater than that of light? With proper aid I expect to go backward and forward in time, and actually see and feel the earth of remote past and future epochs. You can't imagine the degree to which those beings have carried science. There is nothing they can't do with the mind and body of living organisms. I expect to visit other planets, and even other stars and galaxies. The first trip will be to Yagoth, the nearest world fully peopled by the beings. It is a strange dark orb at the very rim of our solar system, unknown to earthly astronomers as yet. But I must have written you about this. At the proper time, you know, the beings there will direct thought currents toward us and cause it to be discovered. <laughs> or perhaps let one of their human allies give the scientists a hint. There are mighty cities on Yugoth. Great tiers of terraced towers built of black stone, like the specimen I tried to send you. That came from Yugoth. The sun shines there no brighter than a star, but the beings need no light. They have other, subtler senses, and put no windows in their great houses and temples. Light even hurts and hampers and confuses them, for it does not exist at all in the black cosmos outside time and space— where they came from originally. To visit Yugoth would drive any weak man mad. Yet I am going there. The black rivers of pitch that flow under those mysterious Cyclopean bridges, things built by some elder race extinct and forgotten before the things came to Yugoth from the ultimate voids, ought to be enough to make any man a Dante or Poe if he can keep sane long enough to tell what he has seen. But remember, that dark world of fungoid gardens and windowless cities isn't really terrible. It is only to us that it would seem so. Probably this world seemed just as terrible to the beings when they first explored it in the primal age. You know, they were here long before the fabulous epoch of Cthulhu was over, and remember all about sunken Rilia when it was above the waters— They've been inside the earth, too. There are openings which human beings know nothing of, some of them in these very Vermont hills, 
and great worlds of unknown life down there. Blue-litten Kenyan, red-litten Yorth, and black, lightless Nkai. It's from Nkai that frightful Sathagua came. You know, the amorphous, toad-like god-creature mentioned in the Nicotic manuscripts and the Necronomicon and the Comorium myth-cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Clark Ashton. But we will talk of all this later on. It must be four or five o'clock by this time. Better bring the stuff from your bag, take a bite, and then come back for a comfortable chat. Very slowly, I turned and began to obey my host, fetching my valise, extracting and depositing the desired articles, and finally ascending to the room designated as mine. With the memory of that roadside print fresh in my mind, Akeley's whispered paragraphs had affected me queerly, and the hints of familiarity with this unknown world of fungus life, forbidden Yagoth, made my flesh creep more than I cared to own. I was tremendously sorry about Akeley's illness, but had to confess that his hoarse whisper had a hateful as well as pitiful quality. If only he wouldn't gloat so about Yagoth and its black secrets— my room proved a very pleasant and well-furnished one, devoid alike of the musty odour and disturbing sense of vibration, and after leaving my valise there, I descended again to greet Akeley and take the lunch he had set out for me. The dining-room was just beyond the study, and I saw that a kitchen ell extended still farther in the same direction. On the dining-table an ample array of sandwiches, cake and cheese awaited me, and a thermos bottle beside a cup and saucer testified that hot coffee had not been forgotten. After a well-relished meal, I poured myself a liberal cup of coffee, but found that the culinary standard had suffered a lapse in this one detail. My first spoonful revealed a faintly unpleasant acrid taste, so that I did not take more. Throughout the lunch I thought of Akeley sitting silently in the great chair in the darkened next room— once I went in to beg him to share the repast, but he whispered that he could eat nothing as yet. Later on, just before he slept, he would take some malted milk, all he ought to have that day. After lunch, I insisted on clearing the dishes away and washing them in the kitchen sink, incidentally emptying the coffee, which I had not been able to appreciate. Then returning to the darkened study, I drew up a chair near my host's corner— and prepared for such conversation as he might feel inclined to conduct. The letters, pictures, and record were still on the large centre table, but for the nonce we did not have to draw upon them. Before long I forgot even the bizarre odour and curious suggestions of vibration. I have said that there were things in some of Akeley's letters, especially the second and most voluminous one, which I would not dare to quote or even form into words on paper. This hesitancy applies with still greater force to the things I heard whispered that evening, in the darkened room among the lonely haunted hills. Of the extent of the cosmic horrors unfolded by that raucous voice, I cannot even hint. He had known hideous things before, but what he had learned since making his pact with the outside things was almost too much for sanity to bear. Even now, I absolutely refuse to believe what he implied about the constitution of ultimate infinity, 
the juxtaposition of dimensions, and the frightful position of our known cosmos of space and time in the unending chain of linked cosmos atoms, which makes up the immediate supercosmos of curves, angles, and material, and semi-material electronic organization. Never was a sane man more dangerously close to the arcana of basic entity. Never was an organic brain nearer to utter annihilation in the chaos that transcends form and force and symmetry. I learned whence Cthulhu first came, and why half the great temporary stars of history had flared forth. I guessed, from hints which made even my informant pause timidly, the secret behind the Magellanic clouds and globular nebulae, and the black truth veiled by the immemorial allegory of Tau. The nature of the doles was plainly revealed, and I was told the essence, though not the source, of the hounds of Tindalos. The legend of Yig, father of serpents, remained figurative no longer, and I started with loathing when told of the monstrous nuclear chaos beyond angled space, which the Necronomicon had mercifully cloaked under the name of Azathoth. It was shocking to have the foulest nightmares of secret myth cleared up in concrete terms whose stark, morbid hatefulness exceeded the boldest hints of ancient and medieval mystics. Ineluctably, I was led to believe that the first whispers of these accursed tales must have had discourse with Akeley's outer ones, and perhaps have visited outer cosmic realms as Akeley now proposed visiting them. I was told of the black stone, and what it implied, and was glad that it had not reached me. My guesses about those hieroglyphics had been all too correct, and yet Akeley now seemed reconciled to the whole fiendish system he had stumbled upon, reconciled and eager to probe farther into the monstrous abyss. I wondered what beings he had talked with since his last letter to me, and whether many of them had been as human as that first emissary he had mentioned. The tension in my head grew insufferable, and I built up all sorts of wild theories about the queer, persistent odour, and those insidious hints of vibration in the darkened room. Night was falling now, and as I recalled what Akeley had written me about those earlier nights, I shuddered to think there would be no moon, nor did I like the way the farmhouse nestled in the lee of that colossal forested slope leading up to Dark Mountain's unvisited crest. With Akeley's permission, I lighted a small oil lamp, turned it low, and set it on a distant bookcase beside the ghostly bust of Milton, but afterward I was sorry I had done so, for it made my host's strained, immobile face and listless hands look damnably abnormal and corpse-like. He seemed half incapable of motion, though I saw him nod stiffly once in a while. After what he had told, I could scarcely imagine what profounder secrets he was saving for the morrow, but at last it developed that his trip to Yagoth and beyond, and my own possible participation in it, was to be the next day's topic. He must have been amused by the start of horror I gave at hearing a cosmic voyage on my part proposed, for his head wobbled violently when I shooed my fear. Subsequently, he spoke very gently of how human beings might accomplish, and several times had accomplished, the seemingly impossible flight across the interstellar void. It seemed that 
complete human bodies did not indeed make the trip, but that the prodigious surgical, biological, chemical, and mechanical skill of the outer ones had found a way to convey human brains without their concomitant physical structure. There was a harmless way to extract a brain, and a way to keep the organic residue alive during its absence. The bare, compact cerebral matter was then immersed in an occasionally replenished fluid within an ether-tight cylinder of a metal mind in Yugoth, certain electrodes reaching through and connecting at will with elaborate instruments capable of duplicating the three vital faculties of sight, hearing, and speech. For the winged fungus beings to carry the brain cylinders intact through space was an easy matter. Then, on every planet covered by their civilization, they would find plenty of adjustable faculty instruments capable of being connected with the encased brains, so that after a little fitting, these travelling intelligences could be given a full sensory and articulate life, albeit a bodiless and mechanical one, at each stage of their journeying through and beyond the space-time continuum. It was as simple as carrying a phonograph record about, and playing it wherever a phonograph of the corresponding make exists. Of its success there could be no question. Akeley was not afraid. Had it not been brilliantly accomplished again and again? For the first time, one of the inert, wasted hands raised itself and pointed to a high shelf on the farther side of the room. There, in a neat row, stood more than a dozen cylinders of a metal I had never seen before—cylinders about a foot high, and somewhat less in diameter, with three curious sockets set in an isosceles triangle over the front convex surface of each. One of them was linked to two of the sockets to a pair of singular-looking machines that stood in the background. Of their purport I did not need to be told, and I shivered as with ague. Then I saw the hand point to a much nearer corner, where some intricate instruments with attached cords and plugs, several of them much like the two devices on the shelf behind the cylinders, were huddled together. "'There are four kinds of instruments here, Wilmarth,' whispered the voice. Four kinds, three faculties each.' makes twelve pieces in all. You see, there are four different sorts of beings presented in those cylinders up there. Three humans, six fungoid beings who can't navigate space corporeally, two beings from Neptune, and God, if you could see the body this type has on its own planet, and the rest entities from the central caverns of an especially interesting dark star beyond the galaxy. In the principal outpost inside Round Hill, you'll now and then find more cylinders and machines—cylinders of extra-cosmic brains with different senses from any we know, allies and explorers from the uttermost outside, and special machines for giving them impressions and expression, in the several ways suited at once to them, and to the comprehensions of different types of listeners. Round Hill, like most of the beings' main outposts all through the various universes, is a very cosmopolitan place. Of course, only the more common types have been lent to me for experiment. Here, take the three machines I point to and set them on the table. 
that tall one with the two glass lenses in front, then the box with the vacuum tubes and sounding board, and now the one with the metal disc on top. Now for the cylinder with the label B67 pasted on it. Just stand in that Windsor chair to reach the shelf. Heavy? Never mind. Be sure of the number. B67. Don't bother that fresh, shiny cylinder joined to the two testing instruments, the one with my name on it. Set B67 on the table near where you've put the machines, and see that the dial switch on all three machines is jammed over to the extreme left. Now, connect the cord of the lens machine with the upper socket on the cylinder. There! Join the tube machine to the lower left-hand socket, and the disc apparatus to the outer socket. Now, move all the dial switches on the machines over to the extreme right. First the lens one, then the disc one, and then the tube one. That's right. I might as well tell you that this is a human being, just like any of us. I'll give you a taste of some of the others tomorrow. To this day I do not know why I obeyed those whispers so slavishly, or whether I thought Akeley was mad or sane. After what had gone before, I ought to have been prepared for anything. But this mechanical mummery seemed so like the typical vagaries of crazed inventors and scientists, that it struck a chord of doubt, which even the preceding discourse had not excited. What the whisperer implied was beyond all human belief— Yet were not the other things still farther beyond, and less preposterous only because of their remoteness from tangible, concrete proof? As my mind reeled amidst the chaos, I became conscious of a mixed grating and whirring from all three machines lately linked to the cylinder, a grating and whirring which soon subsided into a virtual noiselessness. What was about to happen? Was I to hear a voice? And if so, what proof would I have that it was not some cleverly concocted radio device talked into by a concealed but closely watching speaker? Even now, I am unwilling to swear just what I heard, or just what phenomenon really took place before me, but something certainly seemed to take place. To be brief and plain, the machine with the tubes and sound box began to speak, and with a point and intelligence which left no doubt that the speaker was actually present and observing us. The voice was loud, metallic, lifeless, and plainly mechanical in every detail of its production. It was incapable of inflection or expressiveness, but scraped and rattled on with a deadly precision and deliberation. Mr. Wilmoth, it said, I hope I do not startle you. I am a human being like yourself, though my body is now resting safely under proper vitalizing treatment inside Round Hill, about a mile and a half east of here. I myself am here with you. My brain is in that cylinder, and I see, hear, and speak through these electronic vibrators. In a week, I am going across the void, as I have been many times before and I expect to have the pleasure of Mr. Akeley's company. I wish I might have yours as well, for I know you by sight and reputation, and have kept close track of your correspondence with our friend. I am, 
Of course, one of the men who have become allied with the outside beings visiting our planet. I met them first in the Himalayas, and have helped them in various ways. In return, they have given me experiences such as few men have ever had. Do you realize what it means when I say I have been on 37 different celestial bodies, planets, dark stars, and less definable objects, including eight outside our galaxy and two outside the curved cosmos of space and time? All this has not harmed me in the least. My brain has been removed from my body by fish and so adroit that it would be crude to call the operation surgery. The visiting beings have methods which make these extractions easy and almost normal, and one's body never ages when the brain is out of it. The brain, I may add, is virtually immortal, with its mechanical faculties and a limited nourishment supplied by occasional changes of the preserving fluid. Altogether, I hope most heartily that you will decide to come with Mr. Akeley and me. The visitors are eager to know men of knowledge like yourself, and to show them the great abysses that most of us have had to dream about in fanciful ignorance. It may seem strange at first to meet them, but I know you will be above minding that. I think Mr. Noyes will go along too. The man who doubtless brought you up here in his car, he has been one of us for years. I suppose you recognized his voice as one of those on the record Mr. Akeley sent you. At my violent start, the speaker paused a moment before concluding. So, Mr. Wilmoth, I will leave the matter to you, merely adding that a man with your love of strangeness and folklore ought never to miss such a chance as this. There is nothing to fear. All transitions are painless, and there is much to enjoy in a wholly mechanized state of sensation. When the electrodes are disconnected, one merely drops off into a sleep of especially vivid and fantastic dreams. And now, if you don't mind, we might adjourn our session till tomorrow. Good night. Just turn all the switches back to the left, never mind the exact order, though you might let the lens machine be last. Good night, Mr. Gately. Treat our guest well. Ready now with those switches. That was all. I obeyed mechanically and shut off all three switches, though dazed with doubt of everything that had occurred. My head was still reeling as I heard Akeley's whispering voice telling me that I might leave all the apparatus on the table just as it was. He did not essay any comment on what had happened, and indeed no comment could have conveyed much to my burdened faculties. I heard him telling me I could take the lamp to use in my room— and deduced that he wished to rest alone in the dark. It was surely time he rested, for his discourse of the afternoon and evening had been such as to exhaust even a vigorous man. Still dazed, I bade my host good night, and went upstairs with the lamp, although I had an excellent pocket flashlight with me. I was glad to be out of that downstairs study with the queer odour and vague suggestions of vibration, it could not, of course, escape a hideous sense of dread and peril and cosmic abnormality, as I thought of the place I was in and the forces I was meeting. The wild, lonely region, the black, mysteriously forested slope towering so close behind the house, the footprints in the road, the sick, motionless whisperer in the dark, the hellish cylinders and machines, 
and above all, the invitations to strange surgery and stranger voyagings. These things, also new and in such sudden succession, rushed in on me with a cumulative force which sapped my will and almost undermined my physical strength. To discover that my guide Noise was the human celebrant in that monstrous bygone Sabbath ritual on the phonograph record was a particular shock, though I had previously sensed a dim, repellent familiarity in his voice. Another special shock came from my own attitude toward my host, whenever I paused to analyze it. For much as I had instinctively liked Akeley as revealed in his correspondence, I now found that he filled me with a distinct repulsion. His illness ought to have excited my pity, but instead it gave me a kind of shudder. He was so rigid and inert and corpse-like, and that incessant whispering was so hateful and unhuman. It occurred to me that this whispering was different from anything else of the kind I had ever heard, that, despite the curious motionlessness of the speaker's moustache-screened lips, it had a latent strength and carrying power remarkable for the wheezings of an asthmatic. I had been able to understand the speaker when wholly across the room, and once or twice it had seemed to me that the faint but penetrant sounds represented not so much weakness as deliberate repression, for what reason I could not guess. From the first I had felt a disturbing quality in their tombre. Now, when I tried to weigh the matter, I thought I could trace this impression to a kind of subconscious familiarity, like that which had made Noise's voice so hazily ominous. But when or where I had encountered the thing it hinted at, was more than I could tell. One thing was certain. I would not spend another night here. My scientific zeal had vanished amidst fear and loathing, and I felt nothing now but a wish to escape from this net of morbidity and unnatural revelation. I knew enough now. It must indeed be true that cosmic linkages do exist, but such things are surely not meant for normal human beings to meddle with. Blasphemous influences seemed to surround me, and press chokingly upon my senses. Sleep, I decided, would be out of the question. So I merely extinguished the lamp and threw myself on the bed fully dressed. No doubt it was absurd, but I kept ready for some unknown emergency, gripping in my right hand the revolver I had brought along, and holding the pocket flashlight in my left. Not a sound came from below, and I could imagine now my host was sitting there, with cadaverous stiffness in the dark. Somewhere I heard a clock ticking, and was vaguely grateful for the normality of the sound. It reminded me, though, of another thing about the region which disturbed me, the total absence of animal life. There were certainly no farm beasts about, and now I realize that even the accustomed night noises of wild living things were absent. Except for the sinister trickle of distant unseen waters, that stillness was anomalous, interplanetary, and I wondered what star-spawned intangible blight could be hanging over the region. I recalled from old legends that dogs and other beasts had always hated the outer ones, and thought of what those tracks in the road might mean.